This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. James Madison is called the father of the Constitution because of the role he played in drafting and promoting the Constitution of the U.S., and along with that, the Bill of Rights. He also co-wrote the Federalist Papers. So what that means is, if you're looking at the legal underpinnings of the U.S. and its idea of liberty and the rights of citizens, it probably has James Madison's fingerprints all over it. But at the same time, Madison owned a plantation at Montpelier, along with more than 100 slaves. Also, the three-fifths compromise, in which a slave was counted as three-fifths of a person for the census, appears in Federalist 54, which was probably written by James Madison. So there's contradictions that exist in his person. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to somebody who understands this contradiction probably better than anyone else. Betty Curse is a retired pediatrician and a descendant of a slave named Corrine who worked at Madison's estate. According to oral tradition, her family's documents, and her attempts at a DNA test, President James Madison fathered a child with Corrine, and this story shared within her family's oral history for decades and generations. Her family had a credo, always remember, you're a Madison. Then her great-grandfather added an addendum to that, you come from a president. 
Then Pierce's grandfather added yet another addendum. You come from African slaves. Betty's the author of the new book, The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family, that tries to reconcile all those different parts of the family motto. Always remember you're a Madison, you come from a president, you come from African slaves, and see where the different strands of her family ended up. In our discussion, we get into her family's background, how she was able to piece the story together, but also get into the debate about the founding fathers, where some see slavery as the original sin of the United States that still stains it today and defines it. Other people think that the founding fathers have been under unnecessary attack, and while they were involved in slavery, it was their understanding of the universal rights of all that was what caused it to become universally abolished in the modern era. So as you can imagine, there is a lot to unpack in this episode. Well, I was really excited to talk to Betty and hear her story. There's a lot to dig into, and I think you're going to enjoy all this. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Betty Kearse. Betty, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited because there are a lot of things to discuss here. And I suppose the best starting point is to ground this discussion in your family history. So could you tell me your family's genealogy uh, as far back as you know, going from um, your family's arrival in the United States until today? Well, the one that goes the farthest back is the English side. So in about 1653, the president's great-great-grandfather, John Madison, came to the U.S. Uh, with other indentured, well, with some indentured servants. And so he was taking advantage of the headright system, which had been started in Virginia to, relate, to relieve the labor shortage because uh, Virginia is a tobacco state and tobacco required a lot of labor and quickly wore out land that had to be recultivated. You know, trees had to be chopped down, prepared. Anyway, it was very labor intensive. So the head right system allowed uh, 50 uh, or granted 50 acres per each person to come over from Europe to work the land. So John Madison was able to get 600 acres by that system, which he quickly used to get more and more land. And so by the time of his death in 1683, about 30 years later, he had acquired almost 5,000 acres. So then his his two sons stayed in that area. It was the tide the tidewater area of Virginia, uh, around the Mattapani um, River. So his two sons stayed there, but then the land got depleted, and his grandsons actually moved to the area of where Montpelier is now. And very interesting story about one of his grandsons, who was actually the president's grandfather, was Ambrose Madison. So he came, he married Frances Taylor, who has a very interesting story herself. And I'll just mention briefly that her father was James Taylor, who was one of the famous explorers called the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe. 
and they were explorers of the Blue Ridge Mountains. But, you know, he was pretty well off. And so when she married um, Ambrose, she brought along slaves. And also James Taylor gave the couple that land, which they called Mount Pleasant. But that's the area where Montpelier is now, same area. But what's so interesting about Ambrose is that he only lasted a few months because shortly, it's about six months after his arrival, he was dead because he had been poisoned by two of his slaves with the assistance of another slave from a nearby plantation. And his death or his murder was actually the first documented murder in Virginia. But his two slaves were not hanged, whereas the assistant slave was hanged. And it's thought that his wife, Frances, really needed those slaves to help her continue, you know, cultivating and, you know, taking advantage of that land she had. So then Ambrose and Frances had three children, two girls, and then the son, who was James Madison, James Madison Sr. And he married Nellie Conway, and the couple had 12 children, the oldest of which was James Madison Jr., who became the president. Though they had 12 children, only five lived to adulthood. Hmm. So this is about the time I can bring in the African side of the family. So James Madison Sr., was officially married to Nellie Conway. And like I said, they had these 12 children. But meanwhile, (laughs) over in Africa, Mandy, a slave who was called Mandy, was captured off the coast of Ghana. And she was brought to Virginia and then purchased probably by the grandfather, by Ambrose. The initial family story said that James Madison purchased her, James Madison Sr. But in further research, I learned that James Madison actually never purchased any slaves, but his grandfather had. So he probably just inherited Mandy uh, from Ambrose, well, after his death. So the the oral, so all that's documented. All of the English side is documented. Mandy, it begins the oral history. And as a young woman, she was captured off the coast of Ghana and um, ended up in, at Montpelier. And the story says that she was sent to a, a cotton field that was at Montpelier. Now, that's very interesting because Montpelier was primarily a tobacco plantation. And and James Madison Sr. did branch off into some other crops. But it's thought that this cotton field was a small area that was used only to help the slaves grow fabric or grow cotton so that they could make what was called Negro cloth to make their own clothes. 
And Mandy was sent to this small kind of remote field because it was a bit more isolated and Madison could watch her, not in private exactly, but, you know, without a lot of other slaves around. And the story set goes that she was such a good worker that he liked the way she moved up and down the fields. She was very productive and that she attracted him, which is has always bothered me because that kind of makes her responsible for what happened to her and kind of goes along with the thought of that time period that black women were very irresistible and did everything they could to gain the interest of white men. And the term used for them was very unpleasant. They were called happy whores. So Corrine uh, was James Madison Sr.'s and Mandy's daughter. So she was their illegitimate daughter, if you will. And it was she who had the relationship with James Madison Jr., who was married to Dolly Madison, but was attracted to Corrine. And in our family story says that Dolly and James did not have any children. And so it had been assumed that James was infertile or impotent or both. But that's not true. (laughs) Dolly may have had some miscarriages. She may have practiced some crude form of birth control. And she also had a a child, a four-year-old boy, pain Todd, who slept in the bed with him, which is not exactly conducive to uh, having children. But Corrine was uh, working in the kitchen, and she went as she went back and forth between the kitchen and the mansion, it was about you know seventy yards away. James saw her and was attracted to her, and because he want, did want to have children of his own, and, you know he was he had a stepson. Because Dolly had been had come into the marriage with a child, but he wanted his own. So the family story says that he became attracted to her, and the result of that attraction was a son who whose name was Jim. His name actually may have been Shadrach, but he's known um, through our family as as Jim. And we can talk at length about what I just said about his name may have been Shadrach, his real name. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Uh, one other thing, too, at least within your family lore, if this is the case that Corrine is the son of James Sr., then that mean or Corrine is the daughter of James Sr., that would mean that Corrine and James Jr. are half siblings. So would he have known about this? Correct. Well. You know, I used to talk to my mother about that quite a bit because I would think, of course he knew. You know, the (laughs) plantation was 5,000 acres or so, but it's a pretty intimate community. 
And my mother would say, well, he probably thought that someone else was the father, like some other person, you know, working on the plantation. But I just, I just don't, I just don't believe that. I think he did know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, in terms of this relationship, I know at least at that time, cousin marriages were fairly common, I think even up until a couple of generations ago. But was there something about because she was a slave, he the familial line he didn't really care about, if you believe that he did in fact know that? Right. I mean, I, I don't think that it mattered to him. It was someone that he was attracted to. She was nearby, you know, working in the kitchen, walking back and forth between the kitchen and the mansion. And I just think he was attracted to her and her being his half-sister just didn't matter. Uh, So you mentioned that their offspring, uh, son of James, was Jim, uh, what the family called him, but he may have officially been named Shadrach. And you said you talk about the discrepancy. So where did that discrepancy come from? How did he have different names? Well, I think he was called Jim officially by by the family, but it was through later research that my cousins and I came across a free man of color whose name was Shadrach. And Shadrach is very interesting because he was Jim, the person that we call Jim, was born in Virginia in 1792. And Shadrach, according to the census, was born in Virginia in 1792. And the the name Shadrach is not all that common, but there was a Shadrach on at Montpelier who was an older man, but we believe that the, the Jim Shadrach person, you know, was a namesake of the older Shadrach, and that's how that name happened to get chosen. And then later, after so Jim ended up being sold, kind of have, having to jump around a bit here. But Jim got sold and ended up in Tennessee, in Gibson County. And his son, well, actually, let me back up a little. Let me correct that. Jim ended up in Tennessee. His son, Emmanuel, at least one of his sons, whose name was Emmanuel, was in Gibson County, Tennessee. In the 1820s, he was the property of Jephthah Billingsley. Now, let's hold on to the name Billingsley. Shadrach was originally owned by Jephthah's father, whose name was Samuel. But Samuel freed him in Bledsoe County, Tennessee. And Shadrach remained there until 1828. At that time, he left Bledsoe and moved to Gibson County. And I believe and my cousins and I, who have worked on some of this together, believe that he made that move because he learned that Emmanuel was there. 
So if Emmanuel was his son, he would have wanted to be near him. Hmm. And it's it's just interesting that they're owned by the same family. There's a there's a relationship there. So as I said, Emmanuel was owned by Jephthah and and Shadrach was owned by Samuel. And there, Shadrach also purchased land from his from Jephthah's mother, Mary. So I'm I'm just saying that say how close the two families were. So there was the African American family, and then there was the um, Caucasian family, the Billingsleys. So when when Shadrach learned that Emmanuel was with Jephthah in Gibson County, he left his he had another family in. Bledsoe County, left them there, moved to Gibson County, purchased land from Mary Billingsley, and started up a, a business there. He did later bring that family to Bled, uh, Gibson County, but his goal was to get to Gibson County. And he stayed there until 1848. And what happened in 1848 was that Jephthah Billingsley sent Emmanuel and his family. But at this point, he was married and had four or five children, sons, and sent them to Texas in 1848. But Shadrach Madison then shows up in the 1850 census in Illinois. And so either Shadrach didn't know what had happened to Emmanuel and his family, or he decided that he wasn't going to uproot his family to move into yet another slave state and chose to take them into a free state. I think as you showed here, it's hard to piece all these uh, together when the records are incomplete. Sorry, you were going to say something else? Well, I was just going to mention the name Madison. So Emmanuel always knew he was a Madison. And so when he could have, when he was freed and could officially choose a name, he chose Madison. Many slaves would choose their owner's name, especially if, if they were pretty happy with how the owner had treated them. So he he didn't choose the name Billingsley. He chose the name Madison. Likewise, Samuel had been owned by a Billingsley, but when he was freed, he also chose the name Madison. So it's, you know, it's the name that is really an interesting tool. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What were things like for Jim, or we'll call him Shadrach for simplicity since that's where he is on different records. According to your family history, did he know that James Madison was his father, and how did that affect him? Well, he did know. He certainly knew by the time he was a teenager. So according to the oral history, you know, as I said, Corrine and James Madison Jr. had a son, call him Jim. At around the same time that he was born, Dolly's had nieces come to live with them. And one of them was around the same age as Jim. They were both babies. And Corrine was assigned to be the wet nurse for, uh, her name was Victoria. And Corrine nursed both babies at the same time, which I, I understand was fairly common practice for uh, a, a slave woman who was nursing her own baby to also be assigned to nurse another baby. And so sometimes they would end up nursing at the same time, you know, a white baby on one breast and a black baby on another breast. But these two grew up to be quite good friends. And Victoria would uh, bring him to her lessons. And it was illegal for slaves to learn to read, but Victoria would teach him and Madison didn't do anything to stop that. And so it's believed that he allowed that to happen because he knew that Jim was his son. And I, I believe that Jim knew that he had this privilege because of his relationship to Madison. But eventually, as they grew older, Dolly Madison decided that Jim and Victoria should be separated. 
but it didn't work for a while. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a, a long story. But when they became teenagers, when Victoria and Jim became teenagers, Dolly s- sold Jim. And as he was being taken away, Corrine begged Jim, always remember you're a Madison. And she said that because she believed that the name could help them find each other again someday. So he certainly knew for sure at that point. And that statement, always remember you're a Madison, was the beginning of my family's credo. So as the credo, the credo began as a tool, is the name, you know, as I said, could help them find each other again someday. But after emancipation, my great-great-grandfather, Emmanuel, whom we've been talking about, added something onto those words because they didn't have to use it anymore to find each other if they should be sold apart. But for him, it became an inspiration. So if your grandfather was a a great man, you could be a great man too. And so he added to the credo, always remember you're a Madison. You come from a president. Hmm. Well, I'm very interested in the some of the memorabilia and documents that were passed down through your family and that you had access to as well. Because from what I studied of emancipation and the periods afterward, African-American families that were broken apart because of slavery, because this or that person was sold off for decades after emancipation would try to look for each other. And you have classified ads and newspapers up till I think World War One, where people are still looking for each other uh, because they haven't found one another. So that some of the challenges of piecing together this period in history is what you mentioned. But what are some of the uh, documents that your family did hold on to? Well, let me see. Probably the most exciting document is an 1834 bill of sale in which um, Emmanuel obtains a wife. He was owned by Jephthah Billingsley, but Jephthah decided that he needed to purchase a wife for, for Emmanuel. And so from Augustus King, he purchased Elizabeth. And it's a very interesting document because it, kind, it was a, quite a surprise to me that it says that so Augustus King says in this document to um, Jephthah, you have to provide Betsy and her issue, as they called her offspring, with you know good clothing, adequate food, and that you also have a choice as to whether or not you're going to stay together. So what's so exciting about that document is that it's actually a marriage license because they did chose to stay together. And so I believe that that's the closest thing, the the closest type of document that any African American could find about their enslaved 
ancestors being united legally. It would never be called a marriage license, but it was the bill of sale that put these two people together who chose then to stay together. So we, we have that. We have land deeds. My, so one of Emmanuel's sons was Mac, and Mac was my great-great-grandfather. And he stayed with his owner after emancipation until he could, as a sharecropper, gather up enough money to purchase his own land. So we have the, the document of the land that he purchased in, um, let me think, 1868, I believe. Yeah, he purchased his first, uh, he purchased uh, 200 acres. So we have that land deed. And then just two years later, he sold that land and bought a larger piece of land. He bought 400 acres for $200. So we have um, the 1860 slave census that's in there. We have birth certificates, death certificates, some personal letters, just photographs in the later years. The oldest photograph is actually my famous my favorite photograph. It's of Elizabeth, that enslaved woman who was purchased for Emmanuel. Um, picture of her taken probably at the turn of the, of the century. There's pieces of clothing, newspaper articles. There's just all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of things in there. Yeah, kudos to them for keeping track of all these documents because um, lots of people have stories. So the historian in me says hats off to them for being able to keep a record of all of this. Well, my grandfather, Mac, uh, started keeping the records, so he kept the, the land deeds. And then as the, my, my grand, I'm sorry, my great-grandfather, did I say my grandfather? My great-grandfather, Mac, kept those land deeds. My grandfather, John Chester, um, you know, kept photographs um, and added on, you know, whatever he could add on. Well, I uh, one other question before we get to your story of confirming your descendancy of Madison with DNA testing. Let's compare this to the case of Thomas Jefferson. And even at the end of his life, there were whispers that he had produced offspring with Sally Hemings, and I think it might have been um, the presidential election or the race against John Adams that was ugly. There were all sorts of accusations and things said in newspapers, and Jefferson's offspring was mentioned at one point. And from what I know, there were always murmurings and questions about Jefferson's his offspring from Sally Hemings and. Sally Hemings' family would say it. And then in the 1990s, there was DNA evidence that confirmed somebody from Jefferson's male line did indeed have relations and produce offspring with Sally Hemings. In your family's case, was there ever uh, 
this sort of historical interest in James Madison and questions whether he also fathered a child with someone on his estate, or was this mostly contained within your family until recently? I believe it was mostly contained within my family. Um, There weren't rumors that I'm aware of, political issues that were thrown out about that. The situations were similar in that um, Thomas Jefferson also didn't have male children by his wife. I'm trying. I was just pausing to try to remember her name. I can't. It doesn't come to me right now. <laughs> I was having the same problem earlier. I was thinking, so, Martha. No, it's not Martha. What is it? I'm sure no, there are some listeners um, just slamming their heads against the computer, like it's this. But sorry, listeners, this happens to the best of us. Okay. But he also did not have a Y chromosome to pass. I mean, he had. A, he didn't pass down a right Y chromosome that could be used for this analysis that was done. It could only be done to Sally Hemings' children because he, Jefferson and his wife, what's her name, Catherine? But anyway, Jefferson and his wife only had daughters. And so it's, it's similar because James Madison also didn't have sons with daughters for a DNA to be used to verify. Okay, so let's get to the point where you begin doing research uh, properly. What compelled you to take a DNA test? Did you think, okay, I want to finally get some verifiable science behind this family lore and get uh, this certified? Was that the reason or was there something else behind that? I mean, I just sort of, I, you know, I've always known that I was a Madison because from the time I was four or five, I was, I was told this. And, you know, we have all these wonderful stories. It was a lot of interesting detail that kind of, you know, support the, the legacy. But I thought it would be great to have, you know, the DNA which became, you know, very popular, especially in the 90s, and and even more so in my case, after um, Thomas or Sally Hemings' family was able to prove. So what I was uh, to prove their, you know, their stories. So what I did was I got um, uh, well, I developed a relationship with Dr. Bruce Jackson, who is, well, he actually passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a preeminent DNA geneticist who was interested in helping African-Americans confirm their African lineages and also some of their American lineages. So what I did was I had three of my male cousins send cheek swabs to Dr. Jackson. I then tried to find a male descendant of the acknowledged Africa, uh, the the acknowledged Madisons, who would be willing to submit a DNA swab so that we could compare. But what happened was 
I was told by the National Association of Madison Family Descendants that there was only one living male who had the appropriate genealogy. I was never given his name, but that man did agree to submit a DNA swab. Unfortunately, right after he agreed to do that, the Washington Post published an article about my quest, and he just shied away. He didn't want to get up involved in some of the things that had happened with the Jeffersons, so he he withdrew. And I tried a number of other ways to find a male DNA donor, but it wasn't successful. For, for example, there was a genealogist in England who was looking for a male descendant of an antecedent of those Madisons who came to America. The thought was, that people in England would be more willing to participate because they wouldn't have any stigma associated with with slavery. But his name is Ian Morrison, the the, uh, geneticist, and he wasn't able to find a living male descendant. So it seems there's a lot of, I don't know a lot of, but there's a number of female descendants, but not very many male descendants. So I kind of put that on the back burner. I think I will try to get back to it, but I became more and more interested in the slaves and their descendants and became more and more just inspired by them. And so that's where my book focuses. It focuses on what remarkable people my enslaved ancestors were. So did I go off too far off on the there? <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack, so it definitely takes time to do that. Uh, a couple of follow-ups with that. Uh, I want to get into those stories that you mentioned there of the descendants of these slaves. One other thing before I forget, Are there any other stories within your family lore concerning uh, Madison and Corrine that really stick out to you? No, no. You know, and one of the reasons is that this kind of sexual relationship really was was avoided. Um, You know, talking about it was avoided. Right. Like my grandfather was one who loved to tell stories, but whenever my mother would ask him about what happened between Mandy and Madison Sr. or what happened between Corrine and Madison Jr., he he just wouldn't talk about it. Hmm. Right. Well, yeah, that definitely um, affects how information is passed on there. Well, concerning the rest of your family, then, um, you had talked about up to emancipation, and then we skipped ahead about a century and a half. As you were investigating your family tree and how it branches out, what were some surprising discoveries that you came across? Well, Mandy was the first, our first um, African ancestor in this, in this country. Just her phenomenal strength. 
she believed in herself. She wouldn't tell anybody her real name. So I guess the most surprising thing there is that we've always called her Mandy, but that's not, that was not her name. She believed that by keeping her name secret, she could protect herself and protect her family. So she only allowed uh, anyone to know that her, her slave name. So that was a surprise. I'm trying to think of other things that were surprising. I mean, I just think it's phenomenal that um, Elizabeth and Emmanuel ended up having some 12 or so children. It's, it's not exactly known how many they have had because some probably died, some were sold away. But when they were sent from Tennessee to Texas, the whole family was able to stay together. So that's a bit of a surprise because it was very common to just break up families. And this family almost got broken up because Jephthah Billingsley, who was the original owner, had planned to split them up and give them to different members of his his own family. But the emancipation, so he his second will was in 1862, and he was going to split up the family. But he died after the emancipation proclamation. So he, he did not succeed in doing that. Um, I guess it's surprising, too, that all the girls died, and so we ended up with this eight boys. Hey, everyone. Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, one follow-up with uh, Emmanuel's family. I- I'm very interested in that, that they stayed together. Because um, 
when when I've read um, accounts of former slaves that were came out of these interviews in the 1930s with um, elderly people who had been emancipated in the 1860s, it sounds like something I notice over and over again is the most heartrending thing. It's not necessarily the physical abuse, although that is traumatic to many people. It really is the separation of families that seem to break people people's hearts above all. But Emmanuel's family stayed together. So why do you think how do you think they were able to stay together when that wasn't the case for so many others? Well, they all ended up working on the, on um Jephthah Billingsley's plant plantation. And so initially when they were moved, there were just, you know, the four or let's see, the four oldest uh, kids that were, were transferred. And then Elizabeth and Manuel kept having kids and the kids could work on that plantation too. So I think it was probably just economics. So he didn't have to buy more slaves, have Elizabeth have more children. After emancipation, you know, they they all stayed in the same area. They stayed in the Travis County and Bastrop County areas. Um, tra- um, so they were initially taken to Cedar Creek, Texas, which is in Bastrop County. And then after emancipation, some of them moved to Austin, which is in in Travis County. And there is still in Austin a slave cabin. It was actually not a slave cabin, but it was a cabin that was built in 1863 by one of my great uncle, Henry. And it's still there as sort of a testimony to the strength of this family. I've been there about three times now, but um, the first time I went, you know, I walked around the cabin. I was trying, I couldn't get in, but I was trying to figure out how to get in and how to try to peek through the, the shuttered windows. And, you know, I touched these logs and I touched the mortar and I could just, I could just feel the strength and the determination of of Henry to build a home for his family, the first chance he got. And the house was so important to him that later when he was able to build a house out of what is it, a clapboard or, you know, just a regular wooden house, he didn't tear down the cabin. He built another house around the first house that he was able to own. Can you tell me about the other places that you've traveled to, to walk in the steps of your family? I think you traveled to Ghana with the slaveholding fortress in New York and other areas as well. Well, I, I went on, I went to Lagos, Portugal, uh, where the slave trade began. And because I just wanted to get a sense of a real sense of, of this history. But that turned out to be a kind of, it was kind of a disappointing experience because I really wanted to see the slave stockades where, uh, you know, stolen people had been chained and that had been, that location had been taken over by a concession span and that was just 
ludicrous, you know, to me and extremely disappointing. Um, and then after that, I decided I wanted to actually trace Mandy's footsteps as best I could. So that's when I went to Ghana, West Africa, and I went to Elmina Castle, which is, she may have been um, held there before being transported on a slave ship over to the U.S. But that, uh, it's really hard to put into words what that was like, because I grew up in Oakland, California, in a kind of, I don't want to use the word privileged, I was kind of spoiled. I was well taken care of. I never had a, a hungry moment, but I was a black woman. And when I got to this slave fortress and it got to where the women were held, I could just really feel myself in there. And I could feel myself being crowded in among other women who had been stolen away from everything and didn't know what was going to be next for them. So it became a very personal um, kind of experience. And then I, so I went to um, Baltimore, Maryland later, and there in the, the, the great black figures in the Wax Museum in Baltimore has a replica of a slave ship and you know i walk in there and they have exhibits of of many things that would have happened on the middle passage but the thing that was most compelling to me was the impending rape of a, a captive slave woman woman and i say impending because what it shows is just this ship's offering, office, excuse me, officer hovering above her and her, um, just her fear. I could just feel her fear, you know, knowing what the next step was, knowing what was going to happen. And later in the museum, I was really heartbroken by wax figures of little boys who were, you know, sort of crowded together. You know, I'm a retired pediatrician. So seeing those children was, um, you know, just just heartbreaking for me. And I just kept wondering, you know, would I have been able to survive? Mandy did and countless other enslaved women did, but I just couldn't imagine ever uh, being that strong, I mean, having that amount of inner strength and determination to live. But th- so th- those were among my travels. And of course, I went to Montpelier several times. And the first time I had a, a very emotional experience, I'm, I'm just reaching for word to describe that. I was able to walk in Kareem's footsteps, literally walk in an ancestor's footsteps, because on the back of the mansion at Montpelier, there was a groove 
that led a groove in the ground that led from where the kitchen would have been, or not to the kitchen, I'm sorry, I'm saying this backwards. It would have led from where the Madisons would have been served all the way out to a kitchen that was about 70 yards away where Corrine would have walked back and forth as she and other enslaved cooks were bringing food to and from you know, the mansion. And it just made me feel part of her and part of belonging to Mount Montpelier. And my connection there, you know, three generations of enslaved ancestors there, Mandy, Corrine, and Jim. And I felt that I was just able to be there with them. Well, I have a question that I think uh, gets to the heart of uh, what you have been describing here about remembering the past. And there's a lot of different opinions, and I want to hear your opinion. And uh, bear with me, it might take a minute to set this up. So the question of how to remember James Madison and by extension, other founding fathers, where James Madison, he's called the father of the Constitution. He wrote the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, co-wrote the Federalist Papers, and made the possibility for a lot of the the ideals of America to happen, for freedom of speech, for equality among citizens. But obviously, in his personal life, he didn't live that out. He owned people. He They had no rights whatsoever, legally. He, um, whatever the relationship with Corrine would be, exploitative just by the different status they did have and everything that you described to with Corrine with Mandy's story as well. There were terrible things happening here. And in order to understand the sides of the story, I mean, different people looked at this in different ways where the New York times has recently had the 1619 project that argues that slavery is in the very DNA of the United States. It formed its economy, its legal system, and that existed past emancipation into the Jim Crow era, and many would argue in the 21st century. On the other side, coming from the other direction, I have listeners that um, I, th- I think they really they push back against that narrative. And one person wrote in saying that he has a family member who does historical reenactments at Faneuil Hall in Boston. It's this shopping center that has historical buildings where reenactors perform. And I think he, his... He did John Adams, but he was distressed because he heard the organizers wanted to abandon the subjects of John Adams and the other founding fathers and replace it with a model slave auction. And he said, well, I could get that if you had a slave auction in something like Richmond, Virginia, where there was a famous one. But Boston was the birth of the abolitionist movement, and they sent an enormous amount of Union soldiers to fight and die in the Civil War. So his perspective is sort of by making absolutely everything about slavery with the founding fathers, we're lumping in with, I don't know, the Barbary pirates and people that have absolutely no redeeming values. And we're disregarding that even if they didn't practice the equality of all people, they at least created a system where that dream could one day be realized. So that's a very long way to say that there's a lot of different opinions about this and it's, and you know this better than anyone else. So how do you make, uh, what is your take on this legacy? Well, you know, as you said, um, 
slavery is in the DNA of this country, and it never would have been what it is with, without the labor of, of the slaves. But the Constitution itself set up a means of, I don't want to use the word justifying because there is no justification, but it sets the country up for making African-Americans lesser. And in much of the country, in different ways, as you go from different areas of the country, African-Americans are viewed as lesser. So when James Madison decided that the slaves would be counted as three-fifths, each slave would be counted as three-fifths of a person in terms of a taxation and representation that makes them lesser, in calling them other persons instead of calling them slaves, kind of, it's kind of very odd term that I've never really understood how they came to make that decision. Uh, but by calling them other, it, make, it makes them lesser. It makes them outsiders, certainly. It excludes them from many of the benefits that the Constitution was written to guarantee. But what's particularly odd about it, I think, is that they do use the word persons. So even though they're human beings, they're, they're not entitled to the same, the same rights. And then this attitude of lesser is passed on in other documents before slavery where slaves aren't even named. And lesser during the Reconstruction period where the ideals that are laid down in the Constitution are not really enforced in a way that allows the former slaves to have a true level of freedom. And in the Jim Crow area and the black laws just continue on and amplify that same idea that African-Americans are lesser and less deserving. Even with the 14th and 15th Amendments, they're still not quite as respected throughout much of the country at that time. And you can see the fallout today. Absolutely. So what do you hope people would take away from your story? Where your family's motto was always remember your Madison and then your grandfather or was it great grandfather who added the addendum of being related to a president. So there's pride there, but then you're also walking in the footsteps of others of Mandy of Corrine. And what do you hope that people get out of this story? Let me just back up just a tiny bit. There were, there were two addendums. So the, the first one was that my great-great-grandfather, Mac, added, you descend from a president. And then my grandfather, John Chester, whom I call Gramps, added, and African slaves. And that 
is critical. So the, the whole credo now is always remember you're a Madison. You come from a president and African slaves. And so what I want to accomplish in the book is that and African slaves is critical and important. And my family is not the only one that descended from a remarkable people. Slaves possess a sense of hope and inner strength by which they survived. They also possessed many skills and talents by which they contributed mightily to this country. But those qualities did not die with the slaves. Those qualities were passed down to their descendants from generation to generation, including today's young people. And I want young people to really recognize and be proud of their slave ancestry and to embrace it within in themselves and to know that they have these same abilities. And I, I w- would like it to become one means, among others, but one means of combating racism, at least how, especially how they view themselves, how young Black people use them, view themselves. They too have strengths and talents and the ability to fulfill their dreams, to contribute to the country. I mean, that's what I want to achieve in this book. Absolutely. And the book is The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. And I'm sure there's a lot more to go into there that we weren't able to discuss here. But this is very fascinating. I really appreciate all this insight and uh, all these facts I'm sure many people aren't aware of. Uh, So, Betty, thank you very much for joining us and sharing all this with us. Oh, thank you for having me on your podcast. All right. So that is all for the episode today. I'd like to kick things off by thanking the Spy Masters for this episode, and I'll explain what that is in a second. Vic Austin, Chris, Rob Matlock, Alan Baker, Beverly Ingle, Jake Harrington, Todd Warren, William Ivey, Michael, Chester, Melissa, Tyler from Colorado, Josh Reddick, Daniel Lawson, Moondoggy from Ohio, David Powell, William Ivey, Josh Reddick, Tim Clark, Tim Powell, Carl from Norway, Tom from Ohio, Chris C., Nick Brooks, Jennifer French Lee, and Baron Fraser. If you'd like to support the show, there's some very easy ways to do so. First, go to the site halfpricehistory.com. I've worked out an arrangement with a lot of the authors who've appeared on this show, and you can go there and get their books for 50% off. All you have to do is go to halfpricehistory.com and under the promo code UNPLUGGED at checkout. Second, please leave a review and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player of choice, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever. Third, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and search for History Unplugged. There, you can talk with other fans of the show about recent episodes, what you liked, what you didn't like. Also, I have exclusive content there, such as live streams, where I do live versions of podcast episodes where you can leave feedback as I'm talking, and I will address it on air. Last, and I think this is the best, is to join our membership program, the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were George Washington spies during the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the membership program for History Unplugged. If you go to patreon.com slash unplugged, you can join the membership program at three levels. 
If you join at the Scout level, you'll get all 400 episodes of History Unplugged absolutely ad-free and early access to new episodes. If you join at the second level, the Intelligence Officer level, get all the stuff that Scouts get, along with bonus episodes. There's currently about 40 of them, including series on Audie Murphy and Operation Long Jump about the Nazi attempt to assassinate FDR, Churchill, and Stalin in 1943. Finally, if you join at the Spymaster level, you'll get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get a three-pack of hardcover history books, and you can find out what those are if you go to patreon.com unplugged. Finally, you can ask me a question about history on absolutely any topic on Earth, and I will research it and devote an entire episode to your question. Probably about 30% of the questions in the archive for the show have been based on these sorts of questions. So there you go. Go to patreon.com unplugged to learn more. All right, well, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.